You're listening to Green Biz Radio, the voice of GreenBiz.com, bringing you news and analysis on business, the environment, and the bottom line. For Green Biz Radio, I'm Leslie Guevara. Activist and political advisor Van Jones is the author of the highly acclaimed book, The Green Collar Economy. The book, a New York Times bestseller, and his work helped bring social justice issues to the forefront of the green movement. Honored by Time Magazine as one of the heroes of the environment, Van Jones talks to GreenBiz about his vision for a new green economy. Van Jones, thank you for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. What was your inspiration for this book? Was it a single thing, a collection of things? Did you have a eureka moment? Well, I did have a eureka moment. I was, um, I've been working in urban uh, communities for a long time, working with uh, kids in trouble, trying to reform police departments and uh, juvenile justice systems, and I just burned out and uh, started going uh, from Oakland to Marin County, where there's a lot of meditation centers, and just discovered a whole new world. You know, a lot of stuff over there they don't have in Oakland, like, you know, salads and, <laughs> you know, stuff like that, uh, tofu and, um, you know, hybrid cars and and I said, geez, all this beautiful green stuff, services, products, new industries that are rising in the solar industry. You know, we should have that, some of that stuff in, in urban America, people who are disadvantaged, poor people in rural America, Appalachia. How do we get this green economy to be expanded, to include more people, get it strong enough so it can lift people out of poverty and create jobs for people? And it was in that inquiry that I wound up writing this book. Tell us about the urgency factors involved with this. Are there a top three or four key areas that for right now are really critical, game-changing opportunities? First of all, we have to recognize that for a long time we've thought about the green economy as you know, kind of a niche economy where you know, people who have a little bit extra money might pay a green premium to have a more eco-friendly product. Mainly thinking about it as a place for affluent people to spend money, which is very, very important. I think now we have to expand the concept to also think about how ordinary people can earn money and even how low-income people can uh, save money. And that's going to turn it from a niche economy into you know, the main economy in the United States. And so in terms of game-changing opportunities, the first thing is when people hear the term green job, they often think about you know, Buck Rogers or George Jetson, you know, some sci-fi job. You know, but, you know, the real, you know, probably the most important uh, tool for greeting the economy, you know, high-tech tool, is a caulk gun, you know, and a clipboard to begin to weatherize buildings and retrofit them so that uh, we leak less energy. Well, that's your big carbon reduction opportunity, you know, right there. You don't have to come up with any new technologies for that. But you could put a lot of people to work. So here's an opportunity. This winter's coming up. We know that uh, energy prices might be very, very high. Uh, we have all these homes that are leaking energy. People are going to get hit with $1,000, sometimes $2,000 monthly energy bills, which is going to be too high for many people. They're going to have to choose between warm beds and warm meals for their kids. Why don't we create green-collar jobs this winter by getting the stimulus package that uh, Nancy Pelosi said she's going to push through to include a few hundred million dollars to retrofit and weatherize buildings uh, at homes across the country. That would bring carbon down because drafty buildings create cold people, but they create a hot planet because those power stations have to work that much harder and burn that much more coal to, to heat these leaky homes. So you could bring carbon down, you could bring energy bills down, you could bring jobs up, you could bring home values up, and more importantly, if you weatherize enough buildings, you uh, bring down the aggregate demand for energy throughout the economy. That brings down all energy prices. So you could help the poorest people, but you could also help everybody else. 
those are the kinds of practical solutions we could get them get done starting this winter, where you could put people to work, you know, and while you're while you're weatherizing those homes, put some solar panels up. And you could have a uh, dramatic move in the direction of a green economy. Now, would you amplify a little bit on your thoughts uh, about social equity and the green-collar economy? Well, I think that's the next big step. I mean, you know, the good thing is that we have had people who had both the material means and the uh, moral commitment to jumpstart a lot of these green uh, products and, and services and technology. So the early adopters, I think we have to be very thankful to. But now the big question is, how do we include more people? We don't want to wind up with a situation where we have just the green economy essentially locked into this kind of eco-niche or, you know, in this worst-case scenario, wind up with something like eco-apartheid, which I talk about in the book, where it can have a whole society with ecological haves and ecological have-nots. You know, some people with healthy organic food and clean air and clean water and, you know, hybrid cars and, you know, everything you can imagine. And other people still struggling and gasping and coughing in the fumes of the last century's pollution-based economy with bad food, no jobs, and a toxic environment. We want to make sure as we build this green economy and as we green the existing economy, we use it as an opportunity to declare some new values, uh, which would say, you know, in our green economy that we're building, we don't have any throwaway resources. We don't have any throwaway species, but we also don't have any throwaway people. We have any throwaway neighborhoods or nations. Those communities that were locked out of the benefits of the last century's pollution-based economy should be locked in to this new clean and green economy. We should build a green wave. We ought to make sure that green wave lifts all boats, and that means making sure that the work and the wealth and the health benefits of this transition get to as many people as possible. You know, we want young guys who are standing on street corners to be able to get jobs installing solar panels or um, weatherizing homes or helping to manufacture uh, wind turbines. You know, we want our rural uh, workers and communities that are struggling and suffering to be able to be put back to work with you know wind farms and smart biofuels and. You know, we want to make sure that, you know, that old Rosie, Rosie the Riveter, uh, you know, comes back not to make tanks, but maybe to make these new technologies that can, um, you, know, you know, fabricating solar panels, et cetera, things that will actually uh, make us more energy secure, uh, make resource wars less likely. So, you know, there's an opportunity for us, uh, I think, to uh, put America back to work, to uh, bring people into the labor uh, market, into, into jobs, into entrepreneurial opportunities um, that have not been there before, to tell young people, hey, we want you to become not just the workers, but also the owners, the inventors, the investors. We're talking about green careers into uh, a growing part of the economy. I think that's very, very important for us to do as a country. Ben, are there certain action points that we need to take care of right now to move us from here to there? The main thing is to go from having a movement that primarily focuses on changing light bulbs, as important as that is, to changing laws. And literally in our communities, there are opportunities for our utility companies and our mayors, our community colleges, begin getting together to figure out smart ways to finance mass projects for weatherization. We, again, weatherizing buildings by blowing in insulation, you know, green insulation, not the old toxic stuff we used to use, you know, replacing the glass that is uh, you know, rattling around in there and letting energy out, uh, replacing those old inefficient boilers. That's what we call you know, weatherization retrofits, and then also uh, renewable solar panels and, and those kinds of things. You know, there's an opportunity 
for even at the local level before Congress acts to begin to get uh, local utilities and community colleges and, and mayors and city councils working to get this agenda jump-started. It's great for the earth because you're cutting carbon immediately. You aren't waiting for technological breakthroughs and burning coal or, or whatever. The other thing I think is important is to recognize that there's a lot of information out there about what people can do individually. A lot of books are out there. You know, here's how you can cut your carbon footprint. And it's very important that we keep that going, the individual actions. But we also have to recognize this is a very large problem, and we have to also act in, in, in community. Not just individual consumers, but collective citizen action is now required to get the laws on the side of the change. Uh, the old polluters still get the big subsidies, uh, and then the, then the Pentagon gets money to protect the oil lines all around the world. That's even that's another subsidy. And they get to pollute for free. Carbon has no charge. You know, there's no tax. There's no cap-and-trade system. That's another subsidy. So the polluters get all the support. Meanwhile, the solar industry, the wind industry, had to beg and cry just to get a little extension on tax credits. Um, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the organic uh, food uh, industry struggles sometimes with them trying to pull the rug out from under the standards. And what we've got to do is get the government not to be on the side of the problem makers, but on the side of the problem solvers so that the right market signals can be sent with a price on carbon, um, with you know, support for things that are healthy and good. And that is not an individual consumer action. That is a collective community uh, citizenship action. And we need to be able to now expand into that kind of activity as well. And the book is, is really about that. It points out policies that we can pass at the local level, the national level, ideas for the next president, as well as local success stories that show how unlikely faces in unlikely places are already in places like Chicago, Newark, uh, and others beginning to green this country from the bottom up, bringing some of the greenest solutions to the poorest people, I think that's the way forward. What's your advice to readers and prospective readers of your book? What thoughts do you want them to keep top of mind in order to move toward the green-collar economy you foresee? Well, I think the thing that people should keep top of mind moving forward toward a a green-collar economy is that the green-collar economy is really an answer to a lot of the trouble we're seeing right now in our financial system and in our economy. Uh, This book is really kind of a green cure or a green fix for a lot of what's gone wrong. The challenge that we have in the economy right now is that uh, we have been sold, in some ways, a bill of goods uh, over the past 20, even 30 years. Both parties really believed that we could have uh, a U.S. economy that could go on forever based on consumption rather than production, based on borrowing rather than building, and based on environmental destruction rather than environmental restoration. And so now we're seeing the result, which is that not just ecologically, but also economically unsustainable to have the entire world economy powered not by U.S. production, but by U.S. consumption and credit. We built the U.S. economy individually and and collectively on credit cards, and now those credit cards are tumbling down. We're going to now have to return to a world where we build, respect the earth, and rather than relying on debt, rely on on savings and thrift like our grandparents did. Well, that's actually a very good thing for the Earth. It's a very good thing for, frankly, Asia, which right now is having to drag people away from their homes and pull them into, you know, out of villages and and stuff them into megacities to make, frankly, crap to send over here at great ecological cost and great social cost to them. We think there should be a green economy 
in Asia, where the incredible industry of the Asian people who are, thank God, coming out of, you know, pulling millions of people out of poverty, can be used to develop Asia, develop China, develop India, and have, you know, strong internal markets there that are more appropriate for the earth. And we should be also be able to pull millions of people out of poverty in the United States with a similar strategy. So a green-collar economy is not just good for the polar bears. It's not just good for poor people who might want to get new points of access to the job market. It's good for the whole economy. The sounder footing that uh, this book suggests, a sounder footing going forward, a way to turn this breakdown into a breakthrough. And I hope people will read the book with that in mind. Thank you. Now, is there a passage that you'd like to share from your book? Yeah, you know, I will read just a little piece from the chapter we call Eco Equity. And it talks about the principle of equal opportunity in the green economy. And I talk about Dr. King. And I say, uh, Dr. King is a global hero because he marched and died to racially integrate the last century's economy, even though that economy was based on the old pollution and poison-based technologies. He made the supreme sacrifice. He laid down his life to ensure that the old economy, flawed though it was, had a place for everyone. He was not alone. Those buses that the Freedom Riders risked death to integrate were not using biodiesel fuel or hybrid engines back then. Those lunch counters that the civil rights activists risked beatings and arrests to open up to everyone, they were not serving organic tofu. Those schoolhouses, which little black children risked pain and humiliation to integrate, they were not green buildings with solar panels on them. The civil rights champions all risked their lives to win equal access to an economy that, in retrospect, was undermining the health of the planet. And yet their callings and achievements were undeniably among the noblest in human history. If the crusade to racially integrate the dirty, gray economy represented the height of nobility in the last century, then how morally compelling is the call to build an inclusive green economy in this one? If Dr. King and other activists were willing to face attack dogs and fire hoses and murderous mobs to get everyone included in the pollution-based economy, then what should you and I be willing to do today to ensure that the new clean and green economy has a place in it for everyone. Van, thank you so much for joining us on Green Biz Radio today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Green Biz Radio. For the latest daily news on business, the environment, and the bottom line, and to sign up for our free newsletters, visit greenbiz.com. <laughs>